Good morning. My name is Jody Holtz. The scripture passage today comes from the New Testament book of Hebrews. I'll be reading chapter, reading from chapter 11, verses 1 through 2, 13, 39 through 40. Hear the word of the Lord. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. All these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it was all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised. For God had something better in mind for us, so that they would not reach perfection without us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jody. Thank you. Well read. Well, uh, we're beginning a new series this week. Uh, we just finished up a topical series, so we're going to pivot and do a book series. And we're going to be going through the book of Hebrews together. And I love the book of Hebrews, and I hope that as part of this series, you will fall in love with the book of Hebrews as well. Um, I think for many of us, the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews might be functionally decanonized. Um, and what I mean by that is sometimes it can be so difficult that we just don't even read it. And it's not really even part of our Bibles because we don't read it. Because the author of Hebrews is going to assume that you know some things. And if you don't know the background, if you don't know the things that the author of Hebrews assumes you know, it can be a really difficult book to understand. And so my goal in this is to give you some keys, give you a key ring full of keys so that you have some keys that you can go to as you read this book. And hopefully that will unlock the book of Hebrews for you. I was blessed enough to have people in my life that gave me this key ring that really unlocked the book for me. And when the book unlocks, it's just some of the best Bible that the Bible has to offer. It's so rich and wonderful. And I hope you get that out of this series as well. So, I have a story to tell you all this morning. The year is 1667, and British physicist Robert Hooke conducts experiments and discovers that the human voice can be carried over a physical wire, and Hooke builds the first ever tin can telephone. In the 1830s, so flash forward a few years, Samuel Morse patents his electric telegraph invention in America. And in 1938, Morse sends America's first telegraph by pressing down a button intermittently to transmit a message electronically. And this pattern of intermittent button pressing would become known as Morse code. And in May of 1844, Morse opened the world's first commercial telegraph line by transmitting the message, What Hath God Wrought? And the message was sent from the U.S. Capitol to a railway station in Baltimore. A few years later, in 1854, businessman Cyrus Westfield, that's Westfield, not Westfield, Simon Westfield, had the idea for a telegraph cable that would lie on the Atlantic Ocean floor connecting the United States and Europe. And despite enlisting the help of British and American naval ships, the attempt to lay the cable failed four times. And on the fifth attempt, on August 5th, 1858, the cable had been successfully laid, spanning a distance of 2,000 miles at ocean depths of two miles. 
And on August 16th, Presidents James Buchanan and Queen Victoria exchanged pleasantries over the line. But the connection was weak and intermittent, and a month later by September, it had stopped functioning. (laughs) What a fail. So in 1866, less than a decade later, Field had raised new funds and finally succeeded in laying a permanent line across the Atlantic. In the 1870s, in the 1870s, two men, Alexander Graham Bell and Elisha Gray, both independently developed devices that could transmit sound along electric cables. And on Valentine's Day, 1867, both men rushed to the patent office with their devices. Bell's patent is filed at 11.30 a.m., while Gray's patent is filed at 1.30 p.m., making Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor of the telephone, having won the patent race by two hours. In 1877, the first outdoor permanent telephone wire is completed, stretching a distance of just three miles. And in 1878, the workable exchange was developed, eliminating the need for everyone to have all these direct lines to one another, And now calls could be switched or exchanged to connect one person to another. And several years later, the Bell Telephone Company, which is now AT&T, had exchanges in most U.S. cities. With the ever-developing tech of phone calls, the candlestick phone became widely used from the end of the 1800s into the 1900s. The candlestick phone had two pieces, a mouthpiece and a receiver. The user would speak into the mouthpiece and place the receiver by their ear. And by the 1930s, manufacturers had combined both the mouthpiece and the receiver into a single telephone unit. Already in 1892, the first rotary phone was developed and invented by Almond Strouger. And the rotary dial system would last all the way until push-button dialing was introduced at the 1962 World's Fair. In 1973... Motorola's Marty Cooper places the first cell phone call to Dr. Joel Engel, head of research at AT AT&T's Bell Labs. The first analog 1G cell phone network is launched five years later. 1G. This thing is glorious. In 1983, Motorola released the first commercial cell phone, the Dynatac 8000X. It weighed 1.75 pounds, stood 13 inches tall, over a foot tall, stored 30 phone numbers, and took 10 hours to recharge, and came with a price tag of (laughs) $3,995. Just beautiful. In 1992, IBM added the word smartphone to our vernacular by releasing the Simon Personal Communicator. The Simon combined the features of a personal data assistant with a phone and cost $899 with a service contract. And in addition to calling, you could email, fax, and take notes. The Simon had a calendar and an address book, and if you bought a card to expand the memory, you could load third-party applications. Ooh. On June 29, 2007, less than two months before Bill Verveldi's wedding, Apple CEO Steve Jobs took the stage at their headquarters to unveil a product that would revolutionize the world. As Jobs began his keynote address, he teased us with the explanation that this new product combined an iPod, a phone, and an internet communicator all into one device. 
iPhone was the first smartphone to utilize the human finger as the primary instrument of input. And the iPhone revolutionized screen keyboards with multi-touch, the ability to sense multiple taps at the same time. And the 4-gigabyte model retailed for $499, so the iPhone has actually gone up in price. And the 8-gigabyte model retailed for $599. And the world would never be the same after the introduction of iPhone in 2007. Why do I tell you the story of the telephone, the history of the telephone? Because now when you look back over the history of the telephone, one could almost say that the history of the telephone points toward the release of the iPhone. Or that all of this history of the telephone kind of culminates in that watershed moment in 2007 when the iPhone was released. Because we start with the basic problem of wanting to communicate with somebody who we're not in the same space as. And we end with a device that can do that and so much more. I mean, I remember being in college and at this point, cell phones were pretty widely owned by college students. It was kind of a new thing for college students to get cell phones. This is before they worked their way down into the high school ranks. And I'm in college and I remember having a cell phone that was meant for talking because you could text on it, but that would mean, you know, hitting the button how many times to get the letter that you wanted. Um, and texting was kind of a new thing, and you still had limited texts at that point of how many you could send. Like, oh, I'm going over, another 10 cents of text, you know. Um, so I had a, a cell phone, and then I also had an MP3 player. So I would talk on my cell phone after 9 o'clock to Morgan when minutes were free, and then I would have my MP3 player. And I remember thinking to myself, it's only a matter of time until somebody takes the cell phone and the MP3 player and combines them into one unit. And it wasn't that many years later until 2007 that iPhone did that. So iPhone not only includes being able to communicate with someone that I'm not in the same space with, but it takes a media library of music and videos that is out there and puts it right into my pocket, and it takes the compendium of human knowledge known as the Internet, and it puts it all into this one device that I can put into my pocket and hold it in my hand. A revolutionary product that changed the world. The history of the the telephone is pointing to this moment when the iPhone would be released. And I tell you all that because the same thing is with the history of the Jews. The author of Hebrews is going to take the history of the Jews and he's going to form it into an arrow that all points to the arrival of this incredible Messiah, Lord, and King that nobody would have expected. The author of Hebrews is going to assume that you know the story of the Jews and you know the story of the Israelites and that you know the story of the Old Testament and that you know the people of the Old Testament and he's going to take all of that story and all that history and he's going to assume you know it and he's going to form it into an arrow that points directly to the arrival of this Messiah, Lord, and King. That's what the author of Hebrews is going to do. And so one of the keys I need to give you today is the understanding of the, uh, that the author of Hebrews assumes you have of the history of the Jews that all points to the release of this, the, 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 the arrival of this Messiah, Lord, and King. And the author of Hebrews is going to say this at the very beginning of his book. So as he takes you through this history in chapter 11 of these people of Israel, of these Jewish people, as he takes you through their history, there's kind of a pattern. And the author of Hebrews is going to lay out this pattern for you. God is going to reveal himself to somebody. He's going to show somebody who he is, and he's going to speak to somebody. And then the second part of that pattern is that person is going to respond. So God is going to reveal himself. This is what the author of Hebrews says. He says, long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors, all of these Jewish people that I'm going to talk about. God spoke to them in many ways. 
And he spoke to our prophets, through our prophets, through these ancestors. So he's going to speak to somebody. And then that somebody is going to turn and they're going to respond in some sort of a way. And this is what the author of Hebrews says. He says, through their faith, so these Jewish people, all these stories of these Jewish people of old, through their faith, the people of old days earned a good reputation. So the author of Hebrews assumes you know the history of the Jews and he gives you a bit of an overview of the history of the Jews in chapter 11. He's assuming you know that and then he's working with this twofold pattern of God speaks to somebody, somebody responds in faith. God reveals himself to somebody, somebody responds in faith. And so the author of Hebrews begins at the beginning. He says this in chapter 11. He says, by faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command. That what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. So he's going to creation. He's going right to creation. And he says, our God created the universe. And in that universe, he placed this planet called the earth. And on that earth, he places a garden called the Garden of Eden. And in that garden, he places the first two humans, Adam and Eve. And God makes Adam and Eve in his image. Genesis tells us God makes his humans in his image, which makes them distinct from the rest of creation in in certain ways. But one of the ways that humans are distinct from the rest of creation is that to be an image of God, to be made in the image of God means to be an imager of God. To be made in the image of God means to be an imager of God, which means that God has created his humans to be these reflections of who he is to the rest of creation. These missionaries who are responsible for reflecting who God is as an imager, imaging who God is to the rest of creation so that God's reign can be spread over the globe. They're his missional agents of his reign who are tasked with the, with, tasked with the job of spreading his reign all over the globe as his reflections and as his image bearers. And we know that that's good and perfect and wonderful and amazing, but the image cracks when Adam and Eve sin because they disobey God by eating fruit from a tree that God forbade them to eat from, which cracks and fractures that image. And now they don't do their job in the way that God created them to do it because the image is marred. It's fractured. It's cracked. It's broken. Whatever words you want to use for it. Right. But God is not a God who is willing to let his people just suffer under and languish under this broken image, under sin, under death. God's not going to let his plan fall apart. He sticks to his plan and he begins gathering a group of people who will be a people for his name, who will be his imagers, who will see his name go forth, see his name spread across the globe, see his reign spread across this earth. God's not content to let sin win. He says, no, I'm sticking my plan. I'm going to keep gathering people for my name and gathering my people to spread my reign over this earth. And here's where the author of Hebrews begins to give you an overview, cursory look at the history of these people that God gathers for his name to spread his image, to spread his reign all over the earth. And he starts with this man, Abel. And Abel is a son of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had three sons, Cain, Abel, and Seth. And the author of Hebrews tells us that Abel's response to who God is, is that Abel brought a sacrifice or an offering that was pleasing to God because Abel brought the best of what Abel had to offer. And that's why he ends up in chapter 11, because the author of Hebrews says, here's how Abel as an imager responded. Abel brought the best that he had to offer. And then the next person the author of Hebrews mentions is Enoch. And you go, Enoch, who is he? And did he come after Abel? And what's interesting is if you look at the, if you look at the Genesis account, there's, an, there's a genealogy that connects Adam and Eve to Noah, and Enoch's name shows up in that genealogy. 
And you would easily just skip over it if you didn't pay attention to it. But here's an interesting thing. Enoch responded to God in, a way, in, in this way. Genesis tells us here's how Enoch responded to God. Enoch lived in close fellowship with God. And the author of Hebrews tells us that God took him away. He never died. Whatever that means, God took him away before he died. So then the next person the author of Hebrews mentions is Noah. And God reveals himself to Noah in a special way. Because at the time that Noah arrives on the scene, the image is so cracked, the image is so broken, the earth has become so wicked and sin has become so pervasive and death has become so pervasive that God just looks at his earth and with his broken heart and he says, I'm going to start over. I'm going to wipe it out and I'm going to start over. And he appears to Noah. He shows himself to Noah. He reveals himself to Noah and he says, Noah, here's my plan. I'm going to wipe out the earth and I'm going to wipe it out with a flood that's going to wipe everybody out. It's going to be a global catastrophe that's going to wipe everyone out. He says, but there's good news for you because I want to preserve my imaging line through you and your family. And so I want you, Noah, to build an ark that's going to rescue you from this flood so I can preserve my imaging line through you. And here's what Noah did. Noah's response is to begin building that ark even though all he has is God's word that this flood's going to come. And that's how Noah responds in faith to who God reveals himself to be when he says, build an ark and you'll be saved from this flood. So Noah does. And the next people that the author of Hebrews in chapter 11 mentions are Abraham and Sarah, and God reveals himself to Abraham. God comes to Abraham and he says, I want you to move to a new land. And Abraham says, okay, where am I going? And God says, well, I'm going to show you where you've got to go. And Abraham says, okay. So he uproots the family and he moves. And then God takes Abraham out one evening and he shows him the stars. And he says, I'm in the process of building a people for my name. And I've chosen you to be a person for my name, to be an imager. And I want you to become a nation of people. And so all these stars in the sky that you see, they're going to be your children someday. You're going to have that many kids because I'm going to build you into this nation of people. And that nation of people are going to be my imagers. They're going to spread my reign. They're going to show the world who I am. And the Bible tells us that Abraham responded in faith. Abraham said, one problem though, I don't have a son. So how am I supposed to become a nation if I don't have a son? And God says, I'm going to give you a son through Sarah, even though she's barren. I'm going to give you a son. And so Sarah bears this child miraculously, even though her womb was barren. She bears this child, and that child is Isaac. And Isaac responds to the Lord in faith, and and, and then Isaac had Jacob. And and God appears to Jacob in two special ways. God appears to Jacob one evening. It's sort of a a weird thing. I mean, there's just no way to put it. It's very weird. I mean, Jacob wrestles with God. So you're going, okay, what? God is taking the form of a human, but it's not the incarnation of Jesus yet. And he's wrestling. And then he's like, touch my hip, touch my hip. And it's just, it's very, very weird. I mean, it's a whole nother sermon series. All right. But God appears to Jacob and Jacob wrestles with God. And then God does another appearance for Jacob. And this one's really cool. Jacob is sleeping one night and he has this dream and he has a dream of heaven and earth. And there's like a stairwell connecting heaven and earth, like a ladder. And these angels are going up and down on this stairwell on this ladder. And God's at the top of the ladder. And God makes this promise to Jacob in this dream as he sleeps. God says, this land that you're sleeping on right now, because Jacob is sleeping outside with a rock as a pillow. Jacob is sleeping outside and God says, this land that you're sleeping on right now, I'm going to give that land to you and your descendants. Your descendants, this nation of people that I'm building through your grandpa Abraham, I'm going to make, I'm going to give them this land. And Jacob wakes up. And so God reveals himself and Jacob wakes up and he says this, he says, surely the Lord is in this place. And Jacob believed God. 
and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then Jacob has a kid named Joseph, and the author of Hebrews mentions Joseph. And Joseph is the favorite child of, of Jacob, and through some favoritism and some unfortunate events, Joseph gets sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers, and Joseph now undergoes sort of a roller coaster of up and downs and, and finds himself as the second in command in Egypt. And there's a famine going on in the land at this time. But Joseph, because of the wisdom God gave him, there's, there's, there's food in Egypt, thanks to Joseph's oversight and leadership. And the family of Joseph, his long lost family that he was separated from, winds up coming to Egypt for food. And so Joseph reconnects with them and he moves the family down to Egypt because he says, come live here. We got food here. And God is going to use this Egypt living, this homestead in Egypt as sort of a prenatal warming bed or an incubator for this nation that he's building. And at the end of Joseph's life, he stands before his brothers and he says, you meant selling me into slavery as a bad thing. You meant to do me harm by selling me into slavery, but God meant it for good because he's up to something here. And then the Bible is punctuated or Joseph's story is punctuated with this line, this phrase that says, the Lord was with Joseph. And so God reveals himself in incredible ways to Joseph, and his response is to continually have faith, no matter whether he's up or whether he's down. Joseph still has faith. And so God uses Egypt as this incubator to grow this nation, and we flash forward a few hundred years, and now the author of Hebrews is going to mention Moses. And in those hundred of years, the, the uh, Jewish people have multiplied, and they're living in Egypt, and the Egyptians got wise, and they said, you know, we could really exploit this situation. And they take the Hebrews, and they make them their slaves. And so Exodus opens, and the Hebrews are in slavery, and God appears to this man, Moses, who is a Hebrew, even though he's been raised by the Egyptians. He appears to Moses in a burning bush, but the bush doesn't burn up. And he speaks to Moses, and he says, you're going to be the next leader of my people, and you're going to be the one to lead these people out of slavery in Egypt. And it's funny because Moses throws every excuse in the book at God. And God's not having it. He says, you're going to be the guy. And Moses finally says, okay. And so Moses responds to God in faith by going to Pharaoh and leading his people out of Egypt and leading them to the cusp of the promised land. And then now Israel is looking at going into the promised land that God promised Jacob. And they're going to conquer the promised land because there's people living there. And so they set their sights on one of these first cities in the promised land. And the city is Jericho. And living in Jericho, there is the most unlikely of people. Living in Jericho, there's this woman, Rahab. And Rahab is a prostitute, which is kind of funny. It makes sense that the spies would wind up at her house, right? (laughs) So they wind up at Rahab's house. And Rahab has heard about God. And here's her response to what she's heard or what God has revealed to her about himself. God reveals himself to Rahab through his reputation of what he's done with the Hebrews. Because Rahab has this to say. This is her response of faith. She says, for the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. She says, yeah, I've heard about your God and he's the guy. He's the God. The supreme God. So you see how Rahab responds in faith. And then the author of Hebrews pauses, just like me now, and says, I'm getting kind of (laughs) long-winded, right? He says, I I don't have time to mention this stuff. He says, there's a bunch of other people, and he just kind of name drops all these people and says, and they were all examples of faith too. And he just kind of moves on because he's getting long-winded. And these are incredible, incredible examples of faith. And the author of Hebrews is assuming you know these people, and he's assuming you know what they did, and he's assuming you know their story, and he's assuming you know the Old Testament, but there's still a problem. These people are incredible, but there's still a problem because there's still sin in the world. And every single one of these imagers was a hero of faith 
but was still under the curse of sin and was still under that cracked image, that broken image curse. And so none of these people image God in the way that they were originally created to image him. None of them reflect God perfectly in the way that God created them to reflect him. None of them spread God's reign perfectly in the way God wanted them to spread his reign. How can you be an image of God? How can you show the world who God is when sin makes you a selfish creep? How can you be an image of God when someday you're going to die? How can you show the world who God is when you have this sin problem that continues to get in the way and all these weaknesses that continue to get in the way of that job? I mean, you had, if you just even look at the people, all right, you had Abraham. Abraham tended to take matters into his own hands. Enoch had to be rescued from death. Abel died because his brother murdered him. The second generation already of people ever already introduces death into the world. You had Abraham who took matters into his hands. Sarah laughed when God promised her that she would have a son. Sarah laughed. Isaac had a serious division in his family and serious competition between his two wives and his two children. Two wives and two children has a problem, right? So he had serious division and serious competition that he did nothing about. Jacob tended to trick people and kind of be a, a you know, a, a trickster and try to work things for his own aim. Moses made excuses and had a temper. Rahab was a prostitute. Joseph was arrogant and boastful. So all of these people still are toiling under the sin curse and under their weaknesses and under the death because of sin. Can we not just get an imager who does it right? Can we not just get an imager who reflects God in the way that he designed us to reflect him? Can we not just get an imager who spreads God's reign in the way that we were designed to spread God's reign? As a matter of fact, we can. And here's what the author of Hebrews says. He says, long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors, all these people I've listed in chapter 11, through the prophets, and now in these final days, he's spoken to us through somebody else. All these people failed, but he's spoken to us through somebody else. Who is that somebody else? He's spoken to us through his very own son. The son is this incredible, unexpected, marvelous, glorious person. Who does this? He radiates God's very own glory. He is the image of God, the perfect image of the Father. He radiates God's own glory. He expresses the very character of God because he is God. He is God's own son. He is God himself come to us. He is not under the curse of sin. And so he is the perfect image because he expresses God's character and radiates God's nature perfectly in the way that we were designed to do but could not because of sin. But now we got the son who does it. It's this guy. It's Jesus. That's who we worship. That's who we've been waiting for. This is the perfect image, the one who finally shows up and does the job in the way that we were created to do it. This is who we get, is the son. And so what the author of Hebrews is doing is he is forming and he is fashioning the history of the Jews and the history of the Old Testament and all those stories that people like to skip over. He's saying, no, 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 that's all important because this is a big old arrow that points to who Jesus is. It's a big old arrow or a big huge arrow that anticipates the arrival of the son who is the perfect image and does it perfectly. And he deserves our worship because he is the one who sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. This is who we've been waiting for. This is the guy who does it that nobody else could. So for us, I suppose the takeaway is pretty simple. And as we read Hebrews, you need to know the history of the Old Testament. This is why the Old Testament is something that we can't just skip over. This is why the Old Testament is part of God's word to us. 
So as you read the book of Hebrews, you have to have the Old Testament in your minds and this story in your minds and these heroes of faith in your mind. And you read the book of Hebrews and you just get excited about Jesus because everything is an arrow that points to Jesus. It's an incredible work. Every fiber of your being as you read Hebrews should anticipate the arrival of Jesus and you should celebrate when he shows up. That's what we do when we read Hebrews and the whole Bible for that matter. That it's all about Jesus, the perfect image of the Father who does our job as a human that we could not do because of sin. He does it. He does it. Amen.